Hi everyone and welcome to the second episode of the Pixels for Breakfast pod. I'm your host Pixels, joined by Blue. How's it going, Blue? I am going well and what a week it has been. Yeah, it has been an absolutely insane week. Um, let's let's just dive straight into this. Um, probably the biggest single acquisition in video game history happened uh, this past week. Microsoft announced that they bought ZeniMax. And ZeniMax is kind of like a huge deal. And they bought them for seven and a half billion US dollars, which is an insane amount of money. I don't even, I can't even think about the next closest kind of acquisition in the games industry in terms of cost value like this. Would it be Oculus? Could have been Oculus. I I think the Blizzard Activision deal was probably right up there too. That would have been huge as well. Yeah. I'm actually just looking to try and put this here. Disney bought Lucasfilm, so the entire Star Wars mm. franchise with Indiana Jones for $2.2 billion. Yeah. And this is $7.5 billion, which is wild. We all kind of have it in the back of our heads that Microsoft can just throw their weight around in terms of money if they want to, but they honestly so rarely do, right? That when, it, when they do it, it's staggering. This is a crazy thing. Yeah, it, it's wild. So for the $7.5 billion, they they basically got every studio and IP that ZeniMax own, which includes some of the biggest, most lauded developers in the games industry. You've got Bethesda Softworks, who are the creators of the Elder Scrolls and the newer Fallout games, and uh, Starfield, which is going to be a massive hit. The game could be terrible and it will still shift units. Um, they bought Arcane Studios, who recently released Prey, but also quite famous for the Dishonored series and the newly upcoming Deathloop, which, funnily enough, is a PS5 console exclusive. Uh, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, id Software, which is the big one for me. So they own Doom and Quake and Commander Keen, um, which is pretty huge. And they have been making quite a big comeback in recent years. So Yeah, for sure. They're not inactive anymore because, they're, you know, at one point, id was very... Oh, they were the people who did this, and then nothing for a while. They also got Tango Gameworks, who everyone is wrong. The Evil Within's good. You just don't understand it. It's a fantastic series. But it absolutely is. Yeah, they've got <laughs> Evil Within and also Ghostwire Tokyo, also a console yeah. exclusive for the PS5. And then they got a bunch of this smaller stuff like Bethesda. I have an online studio that work on Elder Scrolls Online, and they have a couple of mobile developers there as well. But this is just absolutely insane because now... We're at a time here where um, Microsoft just played a massive card just a few hours before their console went on pre-order. And Mm. it potentially has thrown a massive spanner in the works into what I consider to be a pretty boring console uh, announcement race where neither of these platforms really have anything unique or reason to buy them. And now Microsoft hold the keys to games that people buy systems for. Like people go out and buy a console to play Skyrim or the new Elder Scrolls game when it comes out. And More than new Elder Scrolls game because you know Skyrim's kind of on everything. So yeah. It's like, well, oh, you want to, You bought a new toaster. Would you like Skyrim with that? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Bad example for sure. But you know what I mean. Like they own. <laughs> no, people for sure. will go buy a console for a new Doom game, right? Like it's pretty yes. insane, um, especially for the amount of money that's now. There's a. We. This is the second time we're trying to record this podcast, but <laughs> before you said this doesn't really affect you that much mm. um, on a personal level, right? Not really. And I think that is correct because you're predominantly a PC gamer, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. So the interesting thing here is that uh, Phil Spencer has gone out and has confirmed that, yes, Deathloop and Ghostwire Tokyo, the existing PS5 console exclusive deals will remain as is, but future Bethesda games in the future will be on a case-by-case basis. They'll be coming to Xbox and PC and other consoles on a case-by-case basis. And by case-by-case basis, he means at the very least, it'll be Xbox and PC. Yes, exactly, exactly. So uh, they also confirmed that every single Bethesda game now and future is coming to Game Pass and Doom Eternal actually is already out on Game Pass right now. There are many people out there talking about how, oh, no, it's fine because Microsoft have been playing the, oh, we're the good guys and play your games anywhere. And, uh, you know, Minecraft's still on the PS4. Um, Minecraft's on Switch. Uh, Outer Worlds is... But those games were already on PlayStation consoles or had already been organized to be on those consoles before the acquisitions took place. I, I think as, as a business move, you would be absolutely utterly crazy to spend seven and a half billion dollars and then let those games freely walk onto the competition. 
Also, historical evidence is not an indicator of future action. Yes, exactly. Just, what if they turn heel tomorrow? Which they can. Think, yeah. They're not going to. I don't but... think they're going to turn heel. No. But what I do think is we're going to see uh, kind of like what they did with Rise of the Tomb Raider, where it's like, this is on Xbox yeah. for a year, and then it will come to the other consoles. I think that's what we're going to look at, because I think Microsoft, like the PlayStation 5 audience, like that's money in the bag, and Microsoft mm-hmm. have done really well to bring people together with cross-play, but they're still staying true to their word, like play anywhere. Like you could get an Xbox cloud subscription on an Android and play these games. You don't need to buy a PlayStation, but I don't think that they're uh, spending that kind of coin to just release those games freely on the PlayStation uh, at the same time. They need an incentive to sell these consoles, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think another aspect or angle to look at this as well is that this gives Microsoft leverage because a lot of titles we talked about were on the PlayStation, you know, even if they weren't necessarily PlayStation exclusives. I'm sure Sony would like to continue some of that down the line. The more of these titles that Microsoft has direct control and access over in terms of the deals being made and and when a title appears on somewhere, the more they can push agendas like cross-saves and stuff like that because they do seem to have been on the side of, yeah, we want cross-saves across every platform we can get it on or whatever. Yeah, and I think there's just so many ripples that come from this deal. like. For sure. If we start at the top, right, we have we have Sony and Microsoft. Like Microsoft aren't even in the same sport as Sony in terms of what they can throw around. Like seven and a half billion dollars is probably the entirety of Sony's gaming division, not just yeah. seven and a half billion dollars in cash that we can spend right now to acquire studios. Mm. Like if if Sony wanted to go make a play uh for, for this deal, there's no way in hell they could have even come close to doing it. Not saying that Sony wants to or needs to, but it's just no. a, a stark reminder that, oh yeah, like this is Microsoft. There's there's money and then there's Microsoft money. Like the only other company I could see doing this if they took games seriously, which they sort of are at the moment, is Amazon. Amazon could compete with this, but mm. Sony Sony definitely couldn't. Yeah, Microsoft has been happy to kind of adopt developers, or sorry, studios that they like, whereas Sony will tend to partner with them. And like the difference in language there kind of implies the, the power, the financial power behind these companies, right? Yeah, correct, correct. The the other thing here is this just uh, goes further to strengthen Microsoft's faith in the Game Pass model. And I, I get it, everyone's rolling their eyes, but this is just further confirmation in my eyes that they don't care about moving consoles as much as they just care about people subscribing. Like people who weren't even uh, really going to get new consoles but want to revisit these older games or see the new Elder Scrolls can do that from a phone now and probably from a computer as that service expands. Yeah. Um, The kind of money that Game Pass can bring them at a month-to-month subscription is so much greater than just a one-off purchase because like, I haven't sat down and done the math because I'm terrible at it, but... If you think about how many people buy an Xbox console and only buy one or two games a year, and Microsoft's only getting a certain percentage of that, Microsoft's getting full 100% of a $15 subscription every month. And right now, uh, before the launch of the new consoles, they have 15 million people paying that fee every month. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in a story from Eurogamer this week, we, we heard that Microsoft Game Pass subscribers has leapt by 50% in just five months. So the last time that they got a figure was back in April. It was 10 million. Five months later, it's up to 15. And that was before the Bethesda announcement. I bet there's a bunch of people who are going to sign up because they can play a bunch of these old games that don't have anymore on that. And we're entering the hype cycle now, which means more visibility, which like a lot of things that escape people's attention is not because they don't care. It's because it's not visible. But now that we're coming up on the holidays, especially Microsoft in the States. This is when all the ads will be on TV. This will be when all of the kids will be talking about these games. So now is actually the time when we should expect to see the spike. And the fact that we saw a 50% increase in what is normally a dead zone in the year. Yeah, exactly, right? And it's interesting because uh, I can't remember if I talked about it on the podcast last last week, but 
it's strange for me to not want either of these new consoles because I always go out yep. on day one and buy them. And I'm sitting here being like, ah, like there's nothing coming with them on day one that like, yeah, I want it. I want it. Right. But mm-hmm. now I'm like all of these studios potentially being wrapped up as exclusives on an Xbox. Like that is a huge reason why I would potentially buy an Xbox over a PS5 right now. Like imagining that I don't have a PC and I'm strictly a console gamer. Like I would probably side with this boatload of studios of games that I really, really love that probably aren't going to come out for quite some time, if ever on a PS5 potentially. Like beforehand, I don't think Microsoft's exclusives had that. They had Gears of War and Halo. And yes, those are great games that I actually really love, but I don't think the majority of people do. They bought some of the most popular games ever period and they own them now so that's like yep that's a big reason to drop money on at at least an xbox s like if anything i think this is going to to move the series s a lot more um Mm. because it's a price point people could get both consoles uh and still have access to those games but i think in the end it's really going to help microsoft shift those new consoles and potentially change the I guess the the discussion beforehand was like, oh yeah, God of War and Spider-Man is coming on the PS5. Now it's like yep. all these big tentpole titles potentially only on an Xbox and PC. I was struggling to find a, a comparison for what this purchase feels like. And I think I realized, ah, oh, this is very close to Disney and Marvel, right? Yeah, totally. It is of that scale for sure. Yeah, which like, I don't know, maybe from outside of the industry, it's hard to like really appreciate it, but you can tell that this is momentous and it's very, very big. And I don't know. I, it still doesn't feel like it's going to affect me too much. Doom is the only title that I kind of care about in anything that we've talked about so far. Um, it, it's just so easy for me to ignore Zenimax. Yeah, that's fair enough. Like, I mean, But a that's lot a of their personal ga- thing. Yeah. yeah, a lot of their games are not my speed for sure. But I think, mm. um, if anything, it, like all of this just goes into the um, the idea of well, why am I buying games on Steam all the time? Because yeah. all these big yeah, temple yeah. titles are coming to to Game Pass. And when I look even now, before this announcement, when I look at the games that I've actually purchased outright this year, mm. most of them are indies because 90% of the big games that I've played this year, I've gotten via that subscription. Yeah, the, the big variable here is Steam used to be cheaper than a full-fledged console game, you know, a full-priced, full-title console game. Yeah. With Game Pass, that's not anywhere in the same ballpark anymore. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think this is very interesting for many reasons, because I can totally see Steam doing something. I'm surprised Humble hasn't tried to do it with all of their their monthly bundle choice stuff. But I think the way that this subscription stuff, like Steam's holding steady, Steam's still selling, Steam's still doing well. But if Microsoft keeps going down this down this road and no one's buying AAA games essentially because EA is wrapped up in Microsoft now. All these Bethesda games are wrapped up in Microsoft now. Um, Like if these bigger studios start joining this way of thinking, then Steam's going to have to adapt. Otherwise it's just going to be an indie platform and sure they'll make, they'll make money still. Um, Like I think Steam is very ingrained, but there is, there is a danger there. I think. Uh, You know what? I look forward to the day Steam gets knocked down a peg or two. Ooh, ooh. Mate, Dezura is coming for it. Don't worry. I don't know. Steam just feels very complacent. Valve feel very complacent. Mm-hmm. Right? I agree. I agree. They just... They have... They have power and they have leverage, but they don't use it other than to push other people down, and I don't like the way that feels. So something like this, it, it feels good right now. We'll see what it feels like in six months' time, in a year's time, right? Yeah, for sure. Speaking of Valve, they just uh, released an update for Left 4 Dead 2 after about 17 million years, and I'm very excited for that. But sticking back to the topic, um, some other stuff came out of this. John Carmack, <laughs> John Carmack uh, did a little bit of a tweet, an interesting tweet. Um, yeah. For those who maybe don't know, uh, Carmack is one of the co-founders of id Software, mm-hmm. creators of Wolfenstein and Doom and a bunch of other important IP. And more importantly, he's a bit of a technical genius, really. Um, he left uh, id kind of in its trouble period, I guess you would call it. Um, he left ZeniMax yeah. to go work for Oculus, and there was a huge court case around that because apparently he stole 
IP and technical allegedly. documents. Yeah, allegedly. And like, given some of the stories you hear around developers who used to work at Zenimax, I it doesn't sound like it was the the best of place to work and that sort of thing. So you know, no. grains of salt. Anyway, that all got resolved, and Carmack's been doing whatever Carmack does. But he did a little tweet. Great. I think Microsoft has been a good parent company for gaming IPs and they don't have a grudge against me. So maybe I'll be able to re-engage with some of my old titles and like doing a bit of digging on this sentiment. Um, there's a lot of stories that were sort of written a few years ago about why Carmack left id. And the official spin was uh, basically that, you know, he'd been there since the start and he was more interested in emergent technologies. And that's why he went to Oculus. But basically the the real story there is he wanted to work on VR. He wanted to work on VR for that new for the new Doom, the old well, I guess the old cancelled Doom that never saw the day of light. Uh and and Zenimax and, and the companies were basically holding him back from doing that is why he left. Yeah. Do I think it are gonna open their arms to Carmack and let him back in? I don't think so. Because they've had like such a huge string of success with the the Doom reboots. But it'd be kind of cool to see him sort of go in as a consultant and potentially work on on something there, whether it is a new Quake or many people are asking for a Commander Keen, which personally I don't really care about that franchise, but yeah, could be interesting. Who knows? I think it's, we live in a world where a lot of the founders, CEOs, original members have been completely disillusioned by whatever the hell a company has, you know, their studio has become over the years. And like this happened with, Oh, this happened with a with a later thing that we're going to talk about with with Blizzard, right? Yeah. Um. This happened with Bioware. This happened with yeah, Carmack. I I don't think I've heard of a a person going back ever. Yeah, exactly. They leave. A... You know, they leave. That's it. They um. I'm I, you know I'm sure in a lot of cases they're still on fine relations with the people at the studios, but I I've never heard of like relationships being repaired with a with a studio once um once a founding member has been estranged like this yeah the only so one this, this will be interesting the only one i can remember going back is casey hudson has gone back to bioware um come back to to write the ship so to speak but mm. other than that yeah it's pretty rare but you know people are holding out hope i think the fact that he tweeted that um and saying that he may be able to re-engage means at least maybe something might happen there, even if it is over at Oculus using using id, old id tech yeah. or something. Who knows? Who knows yep. what's going to happen? Yep. Um, Hard to say. But the CEO of Microsoft, Satya Nadella, has said that this won't be the last of the acquisitions. So, so, so Microsoft have been buying up studios for years now. Um, they have. It's been part of their major major uh, strategy. Mm. They, I'm trying to. They picked up Ninja Theory. They picked up Obsidian Entertainment. They've picked up Double Fine. They've picked up like a huge amount of high-profile, well-known studios um, over yeah. the last couple of years. And even thinking about that, way back when Obsidian got uh, acquired, there was a lot of rumors going around the back ends um, we would hear. Because we, we, I used to know quite a few people that worked at Microsoft about, you're not going to believe who we're going to pick up. You're not gonna, it's going to be mm-hmm. huge. It's going to be huge. And then it was supposed to happen at that E3. And then they came out and said, we got Obsidian. And I always was like, that's not huge. And apparently, uh, like, this was the deal that was on the table. Uh, and it's taken right. this long to get across the line, which makes a lot of sense because people were building this up as this massive announcement. And then it was like, we bought Obsidian, which, yeah, cool. Obsidian's great and all, but they're not exactly mm. a, a gigantic studio. They're a well-loved mm. studio. So, yeah, it's definitely, I think, been in the works for a long, long time. But... Uh, yeah, the CEO uh, with Spencer has come out and basically said that, you know, you can't wake up one day and say, let's build a game studio from scratch. The idea of having content is so we can reach larger communities. And then Spencer went on to say that uh, content is just an incredible ingredient to our platform that we continue to invest in. This doubles the size of our creative organization. So now that they own all these studios, it's kind of interesting. Like what would happen if, you know, Double Fine and Bethesda worked on a game together? Like, Probably not going to happen, but just the the possibilities of, hey, we're all actually under this umbrella now. Like they can share tech between studios. They They all make very different games. Um, They can share learnings on resources on these new consoles and how to get the best out of them. Like there are so many layers to this that can really just really beef up what what Microsoft is offering, Uh, which, you know, I don't think I don't work at Sony and I don't know that many people do, but 
you get the impression that those studios are very siloed off and not really talking that much to each other. Like there's the occasional, yeah. oh, we helped them do this or that, but I don't know. There seems to be much more of an inclusive deal over at Microsoft, which is pretty exciting to see. Um, I think at the very shallow level is like, yeah, what you're talking about is really cool if id tech found its way into double fine games, right? Yeah. But the more likely thing that can happen is just crossovers. Yep. Crossovers awesome. sell games. I like, like where special games and exclusives sell consoles. Crossovers sp- sell games because crossovers get the attention of both halves of the Venn diagram. Yeah. You totally. don't get the cross section. You know, like when Geralt of Rivia turned up in Soul Calibur, that caught a lot of Witcher fans' attention. And not all of them converted into sales, but still, crossovers are going to sell games. And once you're under an umbrella company, then that conversation of how do we handle this IP going across becomes a lot easier. And I would be more looking forward to that. You know, it it does mean that we'll, we're potentially facing down the future of the next Elder Scrolls game having a DLC of, like, a fun DLC of Doom Armor, right? Doom Guy Armor or mm-hmm, whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, that's the kind of likely thing that we're going to see. Um, the next Doom having, I mean, I'm going to be boring and just be like Dovahkiin skins and stuff like that. But that is for sure the easiest avenue of expanding these um, IPs that I can see happening. Especially because the language they used in that statement is also very telling. The games aren't the end goal here. It's about getting a larger platform community. Yeah. And the games are just the carrot that they know you want. Yeah, exactly. This isn't a bad thing. This is exactly the right way to approach 2020 and console management and and a games division uh, when you're the size of Microsoft. Consoles are definitely on the way out in in a big way, especially with streaming. So having the platform there to to support Mm. what what is the next step in Mm. probably not even that long. I would say five years. We'll see. I would not be surprised if we only have one more console, like traditional uh, console generation after this. Yeah, I said five years ago. Five, I said five years, five years ago. Uh-huh. So I have a bit more against it because technology was there five years ago. We just we just didn't have the infrastructure. Yeah. Um, we still don't quite have the infrastructure, but we're getting there. Like we're much closer to it than we were five years ago. Yeah, I don't so think. You could, um, you, you could I don't think that right. we're going to be in a spot where at least Microsoft, I don't know what PlayStation plans are. They're, they're always going to have a box that you can buy, but it's definitely yeah. not going to be their focus. They'll probably have something, I would imagine, similar to a Chromecast that just connects mm. and you plug your controller onto it. Or yep. you can buy the box if you want like latency-free hardcore gaming in your house. To be honest, I would probably be fine with not getting that um, and just having the streaming platform myself, but I know mm. many people out there wouldn't. But what we need, what we really need here, Blue, is Iron Galaxy to bring back a killer instinct with a roster of all these characters added in. That's what we need. I keep uh, seeing everyone saying, oh, we can make a Microsoft Smash now. I'm like, you're going about it wrong. Microsoft just need to make a new killer instinct with a recurring roster of awesome characters. I, I have shivers right now. Goosebumps are going through because, <laughs> absolutely. Killer, killer Instinct is, um, Killer Instinct was such a, such a story. It yeah. had no right to be as good as it was. Um, like it, it had thirty seconds in the uh, in the conference that it was revealed in, if I recall correctly, back uh-huh. in like two thousand eleven or whatever. And people were like, "Oh my god, Killer Instinct is coming! It looks good, but what if it's crap?" You know. And then I, I don't know how many people remember Killer Instinct was the next BLA title. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's was. not a. Never had a physical release. It's not a full-fledged game. It had an amazing model at the time that, like, really copied... Uh, or not copied, but, like, uh, riffed off of the League of Legends model. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you had rotating fighters, and you just bought the fighter you wanted. Yeah. Um, it did so much right and so much well. And both Iron Galaxy and Double Helix... Double Helix? Yeah, Double Helix, yeah. Yeah, Double Helix did amazing work on it. By the end of its um, support cycle, it was a unique game, unlike anything else out there for fighting game uh, players especially. Yeah. And it's just been completely snubbed for the last six years. Yeah, I know, right? 
I think it's kind of interesting too that because I know nothing about Double Helix, but Iron Galaxies are made up of a bunch of ex-Midway guys who I assume a lot of them would have worked on those early Mortal Kombat titles and stuff. So there would have been quite a bit of fighting game knowledge in there. So it's kind of interesting and exciting to see them not just revert to, we know how to make a fighting game because that's how I feel most of them come out. It's just like, mm. I worked on Street Fighter, so that's how I make fighting games. It it was the brainchild of uh, one Ken Loeb, I believe his name was. And they actually brought him back to consult on it. And that's where, yeah, a lot of it just really solidified of, like, this is what we want the modern version of Killer Instinct to be. They definitely have a lot of... So here's the thing about Microsoft. Um, aside from the studios they have, they have a lot of IP. And a lot mm-hmm. of them that, you know, for example, Commander Keen, like, they now own Commander Keen. Uh, yeah. untapped and completely underused um, and we're, it's in the right time for nostalgia, even in terms of Killer Instinct. Yeah. It's been one full console generation now. It's the right time to bring it back if you wanted to. You can do a lot of very big things for a very beloved IP. And it will require a bit of investment, but uh, $7.5 billion later after a purchase, I don't think that um, you can say that anything is too big of an investment for Microsoft if they believe it's going to be valuable to their platform. I actually think that there needs to be a movement from within the community because they seem to place an importance on what the community wants of them at the moment. Mm -hmm. And so I think if the community is able to make a big enough wave for any specific thing, that gives it a bit more legs for Microsoft to seriously consider it. I don't know if you're aware, but as of a year and a half ago, possibly two years ago now, there was a, a, a small movement uh, that you know ran on the hashtag bring back KI. And mm. people have been poking Microsoft about this for a while now. Interesting. Uh, earlier Interesting. this year, there was the whole back to block documentary, which was super great and went over a lot of the development all the way from original Killer Instinct back in the 90s, what brought it around, the concept of where the ultra combo came, came from, mm-hmm. where, um, auto, where doubles came from and stuff like that all the way up to the process that happened to Iron Galaxy and Double Helix and and Microsoft themselves. I don't know if this is one of the things that, that caused them to really start just buying studios, but like they had a studio bought out from under them. Yeah. That's, that why, that's why Killer Instinct changed hands. Yeah. Cha- uh, went from a studio to another studio. Yeah, Amazon because Helix, yeah. Yeah, so... <laughs> Uh, I, I I wonder if that's part of why uh, Microsoft just decided, you know what, from now on, we just buy the studios we want to work with. Yeah. Because uh, I believe this predated uh, Bungie. Yeah, that was another one, yeah. Which, yeah, that's, as oh, well. To be a fly on Bungie's wall over the last five years, like, oh. It would be insane. To yeah. be independent, to go into a Microsoft house, to go out under Activision, to become independent yeah. again, like, crazy yeah. Nutty. What a journey. The, and the, to keep this. and to keep the Destiny IP. Like, oh, some some weird deal went down there. That was pretty... I would love to know. I mean, they, they probably learned with Halo, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because there's no way... There's no way Microsoft would have let them walk with Halo. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely not. But then maybe in the legal contracts, they, they, they retained IP control. Mm. Uh, wonder how much they gave up for that. Yeah. Would so, I don't know. know. Uh, I, I think that with the vast amount that Microsoft now owns, obviously a lot of the studios will be looking to make new stuff, new content, mm-hmm. new Elder Scrolls and all that. Uh, but I think there's also room for the users. I, I'm, I've been avoiding the word players or, or gamers because it they it feels like it's more just users of the Xbox platforms, yeah. xCloud and all of that. Yeah, uh, It'll be up to them to try to convince Microsoft to look at some old stuff. Well. I guess we'll see. Yeah, they're not so much in the realms of fan service yet. So yeah, yeah, they've been playing nice, but they're not really fan servicey. We'll have to see. And staying on with studio news, the former Skullgirls developers have have made a new studio. Um, good on them. Yeah, yeah, good on them. So the studio name is Future Club. Uh, it's been funded by a bunch of. I think it's fifteen. Let me have a look here. Yeah, it's twelve to fifteen uh, developers. All who were laid off from Lab Zero. Basically, uh, the head of Lab Zero, Mike Zymon, I think that's how you say his name. Um, yeah. Basically, not great. Definitely not a great leader. And there's been allegations of, uh, you know, assault 
and and those sorts of things. Harassment. So harassment, yeah. So they had um, a couple of people come out public with that and step down from Skullgirls, uh, and then a bunch more left, and then Zymon actually just fired most of the other employees. Well, the full story is a lot more insidious than that, right? Because the full yeah. story is that when the news broke, they actually tried to resolve this internally. They had they, they didn't just go public with this there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, they did try to resolve this internally, and they had company-wide meetings where they confronted Mike, Mike Z, and talked through this. Or, and I will state as well, these are the uh, series of events as has been told by the people who have stepped down. Yes. Okay, so there is some bias here. Uh, do be aware of that. I, I I don't like recounting these without being able to pass on proper context. So the story, according to the people who were the most vocal about what happened in Lab Zero, uh, in Lab Zero is that they had a company-wide meeting, confronted Mike Z about this. They sort of came to the conclusion that the right thing to do here was for Mike Z to just step down so that the company can continue as it is, and then they can try to resolve whatever personal grievances they have with Mike Z outside of the professional context, because no one felt comfortable with him being in a position of power and leadership in the company anymore. And at first, that, that seemed to have gone over well. However, in the following month, this is in the time span of like July into August, nothing changed. And in fact, Mike Z started consolidating all of his control over the company. And it was very clear that he had full control, that no one had enough, like no one else combined had enough uh, ability to sway anything in the company. It was still at the end of the day, his company. And, you know, part of what happened here is like he tried to get more people to talk to him one-on-one to try to work out some form of conflict resolution. Um, From his perspective, what he has said is that he has been trying to get people to talk to him directly and tell him what's wrong so that they can work through it. And that since, in his words, no one has a, like, they don't have a conclusive definitive message, he thinks the right thing to do was just hold control of the company. And every, like, all of the people who stepped down, who have publicly spoke about, you know, um, resigning from the company and why, have said that that's absolute crock and that he's, you know, just holding power for the sake of holding power. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the rough story behind what happened there. Which, you know, is not good for anyone uh, ever no. to go through. Um, doesn't no, matter the size of your studio or whatever you're doing, but it's it's also um, just quite upsetting because this is a, a very young studio that was smashing it out of the park. Like, they came out with Skullgirls and it mm-hmm. was pretty wildly successful among the fighting game community and just indie One of- developers in general. Yeah. Uh, in its time, Skullgirls had one of the most successful um, crowdfunding campaigns. It it got over a million US dollars, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, and memory. and the end result was was really good and and well Fantastic. respected by you know developers Absolutely. and players. Uh, and then they followed that up with their work with Indivisible, which mm-hmm. is a pretty, I think, underrated kind of landmark game. It's a game that takes you know, cultural heritage from the Philippines and puts it mm-hmm. front and center in a RPG mm-hmm. setting and, yep. and explores that. And that's, you know, not something that's done ever. Um, so to have, no. like, it, there's always the concern that when an indie studio kind of has a huge hit with their first release that they, they can't follow it up. And a lot of indie studios do struggle with that. But to yep. have them make a completely different game and a game with so much depth and nuance. That's the big thing. Yeah, and then to find out that this sort of thing has been happening behind the scenes is mm. is really upsetting. Um, mm. So I don't know. I think Lab Zero once again, you can you can sit on either side of the fence if you're a player and you don't want to know about all this stuff and you just want to play the games and focus on that. Like I understand that. I, I totally get that point of view. Um, if you're a developer or you know behind the scenes like Blue and I am, like it's important to know these because you never know who you're going to work with how you're going to work with and um you know that that everyone has shitty jobs from now and then but this sounds like it was definitely a lot more insidious than that um but anyway they've left and created their own studio called future club um and it's going to be a employee-owned cooperative game development studio 
So established with the belief that strong teams are greater than the sum of their parts. We value mm-hmm. open, honest communication with peers, partners, and players, and take pride in our strength as a team. Because of the co-op structure, that the studio's power won't fall onto a single person, and uh, they're putting learning in conf- from mistakes. I was about to say they're putting in conflict resolution processes in place to yeah. avoid some of the issues yeah, that cause Lab Zero to sure. shut down. So. For sure. For them to come out and also be like, here's the core belief of the company, that makes me feel like they really got burnt, right? Like, they, I'm. you don't do that. Like, people leave and start their own company because they don't like where they work. Like, for them to come out and make it a core central belief of a company yeah. means that yeah. things must have we been We never really want this bad. to happen again. Never again. If I'm just reporting on this, I want to be as objective as possible and give you as much of both sides as possible. But personally, I have all of my belief in the employees that left because i mean it's not just the employees uh i'm I'm a i'm a part of the fighting game community ish worldwide like i do follow some people and mike z's very prominent member and it's not like it did not come as a surprise to a lot of other prominent members it seems like and that's just so damning yeah exactly it's so bad if uh, the people you hang out with in your free time don't have your back and aren't surprised when your coworkers say that you, you know, acted not so nicely. And uh, yeah, I'm trying to not be like overly critical or, or like just I, I don't want to call him a piece of shit, but it sounds like he acted like a piece of shit. Yeah, it definitely um, is not a... Um... It doesn't sound like a good time for anyone involved. No, and no. Yeah. So I'm super psyched for what this new studio can potentially bring because, okay, for anyone out there who's never seen some of the stuff from Lab Zero, outside of the mechanics of it, if you ever, if you're someone who like wants to pay attention to beautiful games, Future Club is something to look at because the good and amazing artists that they have have come with them, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one of Skullgirl's main draws was that in early 2010s, like around 2013, I think, is when like Second Encore came out. Mm-hmm. In that era, when we had very properly transitioned to two and a half D fighting games for the 2D games, that is to say, 3D models that like try to look 2D. That you know, yeah. Guilty Gear, um, Exard, which is one of the most beautiful games out there. They actually used. 3D models and then just have this very smart filter over it to make it 2D. Skullgirls is fully sprite animated. Yeah. It's frame phenomenal. by frame, every frame drawn, and it's it's gorgeous. It it is reminiscent of 90s era Capcom fighting games. And I that is that is high praise to anyone who knows um who has followed like the 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 kind of art journey that Capcom has had. Skull I I don't think Skullgirls was like on par but like it's definitely like reaching there and indivisible looks amazing as well indivisible yeah. animates well it looks crisp it has good color how many games nowadays look just gray dull and drab yeah indivisible yeah. is bright and cheerful for the most part <laughs> very cool game very cool game absolutely so i i it, it, for anything else gameplay aside if, it, if they're game because who knows what kind of game they're gonna do they went from fighting game to not turn-based RPG, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Who knows what game they will attempt next. I am very confident it's going to look amazing either way. They're not the only new studio that was announced this week, though, Blue. And this one is oh, pretty big. Pretty big. Also near and dear to my heart. <laughs> yeah. So Mike Morhaime, former CEO of Blizzard and one of the co-founders, has announced that he started a new studio. And a bunch of former Blizzard staff have joined the ranks. And, and not low-level uh, staff either, but we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, mm-hmm. So the studio's name is Dreamhaven, and they've currently got two dev teams running. Which is crazy. Yeah, that makes me think this is not... This has been kind of going for a little while, I think. And they're just... This is, like, this, is not, this is not indie, this is not AAA, this is like in that middle ground. Yeah, and it's not... One of those cases where they decided, oh, we're going to start a studio and announced it mm. the next day. Like this is, seems like it's got some actual planning and forethought. They have two teams uh, set up. So one is called Moonshot and the other one is called Secret Door. And each of those teams are led by ex-Blizzard talent with Mike Mornheim and his wife kind of running the company. Um, so the Moonshot team is led by Jason Chase, uh, who 
was one of the directors on StarCraft 2. We've got Ben Thompson and Dustin Browder, and uh, they all worked on StarCraft 2, Heroes of the Storm, and Hearthstone, um, which, you know, is a big deal. And they're, they're all, they were quite high up at Blizzard. Uh, and then Secret Door is head up by the former leader of Warcraft 3 and StarCraft 2 teams, Chris Sigatti, which that's a huge get because both games are highly, highly loved by everyone except me. Um, (laughs) and the former Hearthstone director, Eric Dodds is over there and uh, Mm a prominent heroes of the storm developer, Alan uh, Dabiri is over there as well. Huge announcement. They haven't spoken about what they're making, but looking at the art, which if you watched the, uh, breakfast wrap on YouTube, what this podcast is based on. So make sure you do head on over there. Um, if you look at the art, it does look very world of Warcrafty in terms of just the color palette and, and the kind of vibe that they're getting to. It's got this fantasy vibe with a big lighthouse and, dream haven written in the middle but it's it's kind of interesting like you've got someone who co-founded one of the biggest studios in gaming and was there for 27 years and then left after a bunch of missteps with activision after that acquisition and then you had a bunch of other developers leave around that time and i feel like every year there's some sort of controversy over at blizzard and a bunch of people leave and by the sounds of it quite a few of them are coming over to mike's new studio mm-hmm. it sounds like um it doesn't sound like he left because he didn't uh like making games anymore it sounds like he doesn't like yeah. Activision, right yeah like when i don't remember their names when the two co-founders of bioware left bioware and ea the doctors they yeah, they they said they were done. Like one of them said they were going to Canada and getting a fishing shack and like never never touching the games industry ever again or something like that. Yeah, and the other and, guy started you know, a beer review channel. And that might all be hyperbole, but it does sound like the industry chewed them up and spat them out. Yeah. This does not sound like that. This sounds like your treehouse sucks. I want to make my own treehouse again. Yeah, and I do wonder like when he left, he probably had a no compete clause, so maybe that's why Hasn't been announced till now. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to read from the statements that were given to VentureBeat. Um, for Dreamhaven, I don't know who's saying this. It's not attributed to anyone. I think it's more of just like a company statement. We're trying to create a haven for creators who want an environment that is development friendly, values product and player experience over short-term financial pressures. If that's not a dig at Activision, I don't know what is, but we'll continue. We believe in the power of gaming to bring people together and as an escape from the unpleasant things that reality can bring. In that sense, it's a haven as well. We like the imagery of a lighthouse as a beacon, and that inspires us because we hope that Dreamhaven can be a beacon of hope to others in the industry who share our values and philosophies. There is a better way of approaching business and game creation that can work and be sustainable and be a lot of fun and yield positive results pretty big statement i definitely think the first half of that is a direct shot at activision like you don't have to be a genius a social genius to work out that that sounds like the very problems why these people left in the first place yeah it's not only that as well it's a callback to blizzard values yes for sure blizzard blizzard is the company that publicly announced starcraft ghost was putting all of their hype money behind it and then four years in they just said you know the game's just not good enough we're done with it because we don't want to release a game that will look bad in our at the time when Starcraft Ghost was around their their portfolio was immaculate like one yeah. of the least things they were known for was Lost Vikings yeah and then it was just Warcraft 1 2 3 Starcraft 1 I think Starcraft 2 wasn't out at that time yet Diablo 1 and 2 World of Warcraft right that that portfolio is absurd and so they didn't want to tarnish it with what they considered a subpar game in StarCraft Ghost, even though they hadn't put a game out in like five years at that point. And this is why I hate game fans. <laughs> because me, from my point as consumer, and I don't even like Blizzard games that much. Like I like World uh-huh. of Warcraft and I like Diablo, but anything else I kind of don't like that much. I sure. appreciate sure. it. But mm-hmm. there is so much integrity behind that decision. Yes. Because every other company would have been like, shit, we spent like $15 million on this over four years. We're just, just going to release up. it to get some money back. Like they were yeah. like, nah, we're not going to do it because we mm-hmm. don't want to have our names attached to something that we don't believe is good. 
Because yeah. I, I'm also of the belief that like if a studio puts something out and they think it's good, if fans don't like it, that's fine. That doesn't necessarily yeah. mean it's a bad game. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily deserve, you know, hatred and vitriol. Um, mm-hmm. Just because it maybe doesn't hit the expectations that fans have created. But correct for a company to do that and like, even in recent years, given all the missteps and stuff, I do think that Blizzard always seemed to genuinely care about their fans more than most other companies. Yeah. Like, outside of the indie world, where, where you know, people, like, there are companies that have really close-knit communities around them. Like, I think Blizzard is one of the few gigantic game development powerhouses that, like, they have had BlizzCon for about a thousand years now. And, like, people yep. go to that because it feels like a, a fun, exciting, inclusive place where people can mm-hmm. bond about this one. Like, it's kind of crazy that, as you said, they had that portfolio of games that are all quite different games, really. Mm-hmm. And, and people come together around the fandom of that one studio. Like, that's pretty yeah. amazing. And and some of this is not always great, right? Like, there are faults with this um, close-knitness and, and, like, listening closely to your community. Um, it, it's quite well known that uh, the Overwatch devs actually read Reddit a lot and do respond to public outcry on Reddit. And sometimes it's like very loud minority. So it's not always perfect, but Blizzard has always had an emphasis on what the players want and what is going to be cool for the players. And specifically about providing the best experience they can provide. And yeah, Activision. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like bad mouthing people, but Activision feels like it has a very counter narrative to that. Yeah, definitely. Activision run every successful franchise they have into the ground mm-hmm. and then they move on to the next thing. And they've always done that. Yeah. They've done that for years. And somehow Call of Duty has survived that test of time. But, you know, oh, despite wow. that, <laughs> despite the remaster of Tony Hawk being quite successful now, like they murdered Tony Hawk. They murdered Guitar In the Hero. first place. Yeah. Yeah. Like they, that, that's something they're very well known for doing, right? That description just makes me think of Galactus Devourer of Worlds just coming into a game and grabbing it, just chucking it down its maw and then moving yeah. on. A slight extra bit of context behind Dreamhaven and its employees as well. Obviously, there was big controversies in the past while of, you know, Blizzard employees not standing with Blizzard administrative decisions for um shutting down protests or whatever or even that time when um a third of the blizzard employees were all laid off or, or i don't remember what the number was like a large a, number of a people. huge number yeah even before that if you had been paying attention a lot of leadership at blizzard had been walking for the past two years yeah. and i'm talking in the years of 2016 to 2018 it has been going on for quite a while so i'm a bit surprised by this but then i immediately stop and think oh no they actually all left with the intention of doing something else. I assumed it was going to be smaller indie stuff, but this also makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure Morheim definitely had a pretty heyday from when he left, and he would have, you know, mm. uh, been been rewarded handsomely over 27 years, one of the most successful studios. So, like, he he probably had the money to fund this off the back of his, his lifestyle, right? So, it, yep. it makes sense to me that there's sort of a double A sort of situation there. Yep. But I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, to your point with it wasn't just leadership that was leaving the company a lot. Like I remember when I was looking for jobs all the time, there Mm -hmm. were constantly jobs coming up for blizzard in my, in my, you know, not producers, unfortunately. So I never got to apply, but like I was always surprised how many jobs were coming through. And then the same job would reappear every three or four months. So it definitely seems like corporate culture because I did, it was kind of like valve. uh, You would always hear that, you know, I worked at Blizzard for 16 years. I worked at Blizzard... Like, if you heard someone working at Blizzard for three years, that was small, right? Like, yeah, people people sure. tend to stay there. They're kind of like one of those lifer companies. And and for a lot of people, it's like dream come true job. Yeah, for sure. It would still be a dream come true job for me to work at Blizzard today, even though I know that the administration up high is not exactly aligned with my views. I know that the immediate um, team leaders and managers still have players' best interests at heart, and I would, like, love to be in that culture for a bit. Mate, maybe you just go to yeah. Dreamhaven, mate. Maybe. Uh, but the, the point being that, yeah, a lot of people have been walking away from that, from what is a dream job for so many others. And uh, I don't, that, that's indicative. 
that's definitely indicative. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And just to quickly wrap up the news before we start talking about games we're playing, Among Us 2 has been cancelled. I'm not going to go into this in depth, but basically Among Us came out in 2018 and for some reason in 2020 it's the number one game on Twitch. Uh, Small indie studio, I think they're from the Netherlands. But anyway, there's like five of them, maybe even three of them. Um, Game's kind of busted. It's free to play. It's now the biggest thing on Twitch. They were working on a sequel. They've cancelled it and they're just going to put everything they were putting into the sequel to that first game now, uh, which is good because they're going to have to rewrite a bunch of it, which means it's going to fix all those server breakages and all that sort of fun stuff. So you can expect many, many updates coming to Among Us, which I'm sure many of the listeners will be happy about. Baldur's Gate 3 got delayed by one week. Its early access was supposed to come out this week. It's been pushed back for one week because their AI system uh, isn't finished testing breaking the world. Um, so if you're excited for that, which I, I kind of am, but I'm not going to get it at launch, but I do want to play that. Um, you're going to have to wait an extra week for the early access. And Mass Effect Trilogy is coming. That's a wow. thing. You're going to say something about Baldur's Gate? No. I was going to say that's that's basically it for the news. And yeah, that's my response to the Mass Effect trilogy coming. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that game. I, I adore the Mass Effect trilogy. Uh, I, I think I was done with it when I put it down. So Yeah, yeah, same. Okay, all right. Uh, so, Blue, let's talk about a little bit about what we've been playing. Like, have you been playing anything? What are you playing at the moment? Heroes of Hammerwatch and Magic. <laughs> Heroes every week, every week. I can say every week. I am not like I don't stream. I'm not like you. I commit to my games. Okay. Oh yeah. All right. Okay. Well, I mean, we're going to be playing a lot of Hammerwatch tonight. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Maybe we should check out Synthetic as well. We could absolutely. I've been playing Pendragon, which is Inkle's new game. For those of you who don't know, Inkle do all these really cool, heavy narrative games. So the first and my favorite of their games is Eighty Days. It's a Jules Verne world where you're traveling around the world in 80 days and you're basically taking different paths and it costs like money and energy and food to go down each path. And there's like narrative at each stop and you're trying to get to all the places in 80 days and like every decision will send you down different paths. And sometimes you end up dying in Antarctica like I did. Um, sometimes you get pickpocketed on the streets of France. Like it, it all depends and you just kind of keep playing it and you learn a little bit about the world each time. And they've sort of expanded from that. So they've done a couple of other sort of narrative based games along those lines. And then last year they did heaven's vault, which was like this archeological game that was about translating ancient languages and worlds into learning things. And now they're doing Pendragon, which is a tactical roguelike based amongst the backdrop of uh, King Arthur, which it's kind of interesting because Blue and I kind of talked a little bit about this before the podcast. I, I, I actually don't know the story of King Arthur very well. I, I, my knowledge of it is basically from that Disney film that came out in the 80s. Um, like I know about Excalibur and there's a Knights of the Round Table and Sir Lancelot yeah. and all that stuff. But like in yeah. terms of further lore, I don't really know anything about this story, right? And I don't think the game expects you to. It does explain a lot yeah. of this to you. Yeah, so it's really cool. So basically, you you come in and uh, a run takes about an hour. And um, you choose a starting character. So there's nine overall, but you only start with access to... Guinevere two. and Lancelot. Yeah, Guinevere, that's it. You, you start with access with two. You've got Guinevere and Lancelot. You choose one and then you're taken to this map and you're sort of going around the world of Britain. Mm-hmm. And you're clicking on these different locations and you're traveling there. And every time you get to a location, it turns into this sort of mini board. They actually call it a board. And you start off in the left-hand corner and you have to get to the right-hand corner to leave to the next area. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's just like this turn-based tactics game. But it's not like Into the Breach or XCOM or anything like that. It's more like a game of checkers where... Yeah. You have to, there's a lot of positioning and waiting and you can only attack when you're in the linear stance, which means you're moving up, down, left, right. Um, But you can change your stance so you can move diagonally, which gets you around the board a lot quicker, but you can't attack diagonally normally. You can get powers and stuff that allow you to do so, uh, but some enemies can attack diagonally. So it's a lot about positioning and waiting and timing, um, which is a little bit slow. And then every single action you do in the game has some narrative attached to it. 
So like if you step in water, it will give you like a narrative flourish, like your boots are soggy with, with the marshlands and all this stuff. Um, and then you meet characters along the way and have conversations and they can be good or bad and give you bonuses and upgrades. Uh, and then you get to the end where you basically have to kill King Arthur's son. And um, that's you kill Mordred? Yeah, Mordred, yeah. So, oh, base- oh yeah, because okay. you didn't see, you didn't see the. Uh, I've the, never seen the end of a run. Yeah, no. the, I haven't edited the review yet. Um, yeah, so basically, you go through um the place and you'll meet characters along the way who will join your party potentially, and then you mm. always end up in Camlin, which is where the final battle is taking place. And when you get there, you control King Arthur. He's kind of down and out, and he's facing off against um some of Mordred's cronies and. Mm-hmm. After a few turns, whoever's in your party rocks up to the battle to help. And then mm-hmm. you can either use King Arthur to go in the top right square and he will go to kill his son or whoever you're controlling can go to the top right square and you can choose to use them to go to the final battle. And the only thing that changes between those two things is the conversation that happens. So mm-hmm. like you'll have the conversation between uh, a father and his son um, or you'll have a conversation between, and all of them are somehow related or interconnected with each other. So. Yeah, it might be his brother. It might be, you know, his uncle, all this sorts of stuff. His um, mother. Yeah. So you go into that small, it's a very small board. So it's much smaller than any of the other boards that you encounter. And it's a slight conversation as you're bouncing around. And then it's definitely position and holding is really important on this board because it's small. Yep. But ultimately it's the same as every other fight. One hit will kill either of you. And if you mm. get hit, then you lose. And if you hit him, then you win. And that's it. Um, every time you finish the game, you unlock the next difficulty level. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of cool, but you get no other bonuses and stuff like that. So the reason that you play this game, it's kind of interesting because it is a roguelike. I, I think it is a roguelike because it is run-based. Like, yep. It's always the same in terms of you have an hour. It's basically an hour. And the only thing that changes is the character you start with will start in a different area. And you yeah. choose the path that you want to go as you go along. Um, and then depending where you go, you'll meet certain characters and certain random events will happen. The things that you're unlocking, though, are the stories. Like sort of day two or three into your journey, there's always um, an opportunity where you have to camp out for the night and there's a campfire story. You don't get a bonus for that, but they're all really interesting. So mm-hmm. it'll usually be a mythic tale. Or when I was uh, Lancelot, he told a campfire story that was completely false. And the guy's like, that's not how it went. Here's how it actually went. Or um, Branwyn sang a song one night. And it's all these really cool sort of interactive stories where you're learning more about the world. And you're learning a little bit more about how each of them are interconnected with one another. So then yep. next time that you play and you have like Lancelot and uh, uh, Gwendolyn, what's her name? Guinevere. Guinevere. I keep calling it Gwendolyn. Guinevere. Whenever they're Jenny. together, there's like this little bit of tension there. I didn't know that they yeah. were lovers, right? Um, uh, yeah. And then you slowly sort of get to put this, which then puts other bits and pieces that happen in context, but then certain things only happen if you have the right uh, collection in your party or, yeah. you know, you might lose someone and your story completely changes because you become another character. So I think it's super cool. I'm really glad that I've played it. I finished it maybe three or four runs now. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't unlocked every character, but I've definitely played enough to do a review because it's not, I'm at the point now where I've kind of seen all the tricks that it has. And now it's just more yep. about just seeing the rest of the stories I haven't seen. Um, yep. I think it's really cool for someone who wants like a narrative game. I don't necessarily think if you're looking for a tactics game, it's, like it is tactical and it's quite, I guess, deceiving how tactical it can be because it looks very simple. Um, yep. But yeah, it's definitely not, I want a hardcore tactics game. I, I would only recommend this for people who want some cool narrative. I would actually recommend this to anyone who either knows Arthurian lore and because this story reimagines a lot of it in yeah. potentially interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Or if you, like Steve, don't know much about Arthurian lore. Yeah, and, and I, this is a way to learn it. I think its presentation too is just really cool and unique. There's sort of these flat art characters. It's very colorful. It doesn't quite look like stained glass, but it's kind of that sort of vibe. Like I imagine this is what a picture book from those times would have looked like, right? Um, yeah, it, it it really comes to life. The music's pretty solid. Um, 
yeah, it's yeah. just a really cool title. It wasn't what I was expecting from Inkle. I'm glad I played it. I, as I said, I I think it's good. I don't think it's like my top 10 game of the year, but I think um, if you want a cool narrative experience, I definitely would put that on your wish list. The other game I'm playing is Art of Rally. I don't know if you've seen that. No, so I have not. I um secret bit of confession here. I kind of really like driving games. Hey, I I don't I don't stream them um because I think they're boring as as bat piss. But I I grew up um one of my friends, his dad used to be uh the one level under Formula One driver, and uh, yeah okay he had a terrible accident in his like twenties and he couldn't drive uh, F. He couldn't basically go up to an F1 because if he had another accident at that speed, he would have basically died because he broke his parts of his neck and back. Um, Got it. So he used to race in like Porsche 911 challenges, the Celebrity Cup back in Australia. And he used to have a uh, like car cockpit hooked up to a massive like 40 inch TV, which back then was like insane. It had hydraulics on it. So whenever I'd mm-hmm. go to his house, like I was playing like all these hardcore racing sims. And that's sort of something that's always sort of stuck with me. Like I enjoy playing a car game and I've always really enjoyed rally games. Uh, mm. And I usually sit more on the simulation spectrum than I do, you know, like um, Ridge Racer or something like that. Yep. Art of Rally is kind of weird because it looks like, imagine micro machines, but with real physics, basically. Like mm. it's this really far out, small cars. Everything is very cutesy, almost like, um, scandinavian toy design or something but it's made by the people who made absolute drift or zen drift um which are very popular i was car games. just thinking about that that game yes. when you were describing it like yeah okay that makes sense but the interesting the really interesting thing about this game is it's actually it's called the art art of rally and it's looking at the the history and growth of rally as a sport so it yep. starts off set in the 60s and you're competing yep. in these challenges all the way up until like the nineties, I think it goes to, and you're unlocking right. cars from each era and you're like racing in these picturesque scenery, like in Japan or Scandinavia mm-hmm. or Australia, like all these different places that are real world places. And you're unlocking all these cars. It's just fantastic looking. I've only like, I only played an hour of it. I don't know if I'll do a review cause it's just a driving game. But it's a kind of cool thing to have because, like, each stage is only, like, five minutes long. So it's, like, kind of, oh, I'm just going to take a quick 10-minute break from work and I can actually get a couple of races in. And then mm-hmm. I'm kind of done with it because it's, like, one of those games I'm not going to sit down and play for hours and hours on end. Um, but right. even though it looks super cutesy, like, the, the handling is, like, really hard to, to get the tail around the corners. It definitely feels kind of like a simulation, but... You have weight arcade- to the car because yeah. that's one of the mistakes that a lot of uh, arcadey car games make is, like, oh, they're just too floaty. Yeah, exactly. So I think, and the the soundtrack is beautiful and the art is beautiful. It has a photo mode that looks really cool as well. Um, cool. So it, it just came out yesterday, uh, I think. But yeah, super, I'm, I'm super keen to dive into that more. Um, and I just got a code for Going Under, which I'm going to stream and do a, a review of, I think, um, which is cool. a, a dungeon crawler set in a failed startup. Uh, yeah, cool. I saw a video on YouTube about it today. Yeah. yeah. So cool. Yeah, it looks yeah, kind of yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I'm not expecting an amazing, phenomenal experience, but I'm expecting a bit of fun. Uh, so, just in case we didn't mention this at the top of the episode, because I, I don't remember what I said an hour ago at this point. We are recording this as Tokyo Game Show is still going on. So, if something amazing gets announced, uh, you won't hear about it from us right now. But we will probably talk about it, and it will probably be in the breakfast wrap next week. Yeah, correct. If if anything exciting happens. I don't know, Tokyo Game Show is kind of a weird one normally. Like, usually there's some exciting news, but nothing mind-breaking. But then occasionally there is. And this year it's all online, so who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> who knows? I, I know that we're on the other side of the Microsoft one already, and that literally had nothing new in it. Yeah, yeah. But so... that's to be expected. Like, they're still trying to find their foot here in Japan. I'm surprised they're even yeah. releasing the new consoles here, to be honest. Hmm. I, I went into, when I first got here, one of my Xbox controllers was busted. So I was like, I'll go buy a new one. And I went into a game store and in very broken Japanese, asked for a Microsoft, like an Xbox controller. And the guy just laughed at me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, that's a sad feeling. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, what have I done? Um, but yeah, so I think uh, I'm not surprised that they didn't announce anything at all. Um, they, they, yeah. Have, yeah. they have 
Balan Wonder World on there. I don't know, Nintendo seems to be... Not Nintendo. Whoever. It seems to be pushing it very hard. Mm. Mm. And they got it. I, it's such a weird title. Yeah. Uh, looks weird. The not knights of our generation, I guess. Yeah, right? Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, anything... that, that's, that's coming up next week, yeah. Yeah, if anything crazy happens, we'll report then. Um, yeah. yeah, as always, uh, this podcast is an expanded version of The Breakfast Wrap. It's a video uh, dose of what's been happening in the week of gaming. It goes live 9 a.m. every Saturday, Japan time. Uh, so make sure you go to youtube.com forward slash pixels for breakfast to catch that and a bunch of reviews and all that sort of stuff. Releasing a couple of videos of w- a week at this point. I stream every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, Japan nights here on twitch.tv slash pixels for breakfast. Blue, do you want to give a plug to your podcast? Yes, for sure. Once a month, Platforms and Pitfalls is a podcast that um, takes a look at one game mechanic and five games that do it in interesting ways. Not necessarily good or bad, but interesting. Uh, I'm technically on a hiatus from that podcast for the moment. However, it is putting out interesting content right now. And I wish I could tell you what it is. I know one has come out on the 15th of September, and there will be one around the same time in October. But I'm a horrible person who hasn't been keeping up with my own podcast topics. So it's all uh, right. You've, go you've check got it other out. things to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do go check it out. It is really cool. And uh, I will let, like, you will hear here when I am back and what we're talking about. So there you go. So make sure you go do that. We'll be back next week. Blue's going to play a different game tonight. So he'll have a game to talk about next week, I'm sure. I'm going to uh, make I sure. See, we're it. locked in. I see we're locked in on the different game now. Okay, yeah, cool, got it. All right, thanks for watching, everyone. We'll see you next time. And as always, don't forget to pixelate your breakfast.